0: Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit CRNAfinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with Certified Financial Planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Hey, Sharon,
1: how are you?
2: I'm doing good. How are you feeling sitting on that side of the table, well, Jeremy? You
1: know, it's kind of weird me not driving today and uh, not being in control, you know, about the only time when I'm with you that I get to feel a little bit of control is control the board and control the recording. So if anything screwed up today, guys, it wasn't me. It was Sharon. Uh, so.
2: Yeah, well, I've got to learn sometimes since I'm going to be doing some taping coming up without you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, we've gotten too busy and sometimes we can't be in the same place. So we're going to have some some special guests sitting in for us soon. And uh
2: and okay. we, we chose them very wisely. They yeah. will be people that can either guest co-host with me or guest co-host with you. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. What would, wanna... that,
2: what would they be, amphibious? <laughs> <laughs>
1: on, that basketball? depends on which school you went to. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh-oh, uh-oh. All right, time to get All right, started. Time to get started. So
1: we have our favorite guests back in house with us today.
2: And in our favorite place, we're in the studio together. We're in the studio
1: today, yeah. We love being in the studio. And who do we have with us?
2: Well, that's easy enough. Our historical geniuses.
1: That's right. That's (laughs) right. Nancy and Sandy, welcome back.
4: Thank you. It's very good to be here, back in the studio on this beautiful spring day.
1: I know, right? It's supposed to be eighty-six degrees out here today. Oh
4: yeah,
2: I know. And today is the twins' birthday. That the day that we're taping. It's April twenty-first, and the twins are thirty-six years old today. I don't
1: think they want you announcing that on air.
4: Well, you know, people
2: can do the math. Actually, they (laughs) probably don't care. But now people can kind of figure out. Well, it's my my sister's
4: birthday today. It's her big, big uh, sixty-fifth birthday. All right. Right. And I think uh, Deb Geisler has a birthday today. So oh my goodness. April twenty first is a special day for a lot of it our is. friends. Lots
2: of good people, wow. but it's snowing where the girls are. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> Last year it snowed twelve inches up oh there on God. their birthday. But this oh morning sure. I saw where it was snowing in Hudson.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah, no no thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm ready for the spring to spring and the summer to be here. So absolutely. Well,
2: uh, Sandy, why don't you tell us about our topic today before we get started?
4: Okay. Well, you know most nurse anesthetists know about Dagmar Nelson in terms of the trial, and probably just superficial points about the trial. She was a defendant in the only court trial ever to test the legality of nurses administering anesthesia. And that was in 1934. But there's more to her than just that. It's her, she was an amazing woman when you really get down um, after the trial. Uh, The trial is quite important. And why they argued, why the defense argued in the way they did, which has really been our cross to bear uh, since that time. And we'll get into that. And then, you know, what is her legacy and it's really quite quite big
2: well you know uh, some of our younger listeners and our students might not even know about the trial so we're going to go in depth about all of that right so listeners listen up this is something you're going to want to hear about
1: yeah so Nancy why don't you tell us a little bit about her early life and uh, we'll kind of move forward from there
3: well her full name was Dagmar Alexandra Nelson, and she was born on April 15, 1892, which for that year was Good Friday. Mm. Uh, her parents were both born in Denmark and then immigrated to the United States and settled in St. Paul, Minneapolis. She was the fifth of eight children and the oldest girl. Uh, her older brother left Minnesota and went to Montana to farm. The business failed, and he returned to Minnesota. And Nelson was the only child to leave St. Paul and never return. So of the eight children, one brother left and came back. She left and never came back. The rest of them stayed right where they had been born and grown up. Well, maybe they liked the weather just a little <laughs> bit better.
2: Maybe so.
4: But uh, looking, looking at her, and as we look at her life, it's not surprising she never looked back yeah. And uh, just kept on uh, moving.
1: Well, it's, it's amazing about that in this time period as mm-hmm. well. You know, I think given the fact that you know women just didn't do that in those days. That's right. Um, that obviously tells you a lot about her personality and her pioneering spirit. So.
4: As we'll see moving through this, she was always a woman in control. Ooh. All the way to her death. Uh- that Our doesn't sound familiar. All the way at all. to her death. <laughs> she controlled everything. I like
3: her already. Well, you would have liked her because she was a major dresser.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Oh. oh good. Well, Sandy, tell us about her education.
4: Okay. Um, Dagmar Nelson received her nursing education in uh, in Rochester, Minnesota at St. Mary's Hospital, which would later become Mayo Clinic. So, again, another big star that Mayo Clinic uh, gives to us way back then. Uh, She finished her two-year nurse's training in 1912, and after that became a private duty nurse for a patient that was from Seattle. So when he returned home, she decided she would go home with him to Seattle as his private duty nurse. And with that history recording it, that's probably her first view of the West Coast, which I think she really liked a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, But she stayed a year there with him. And, and then she went back to what was now the Mayo Clinic to become what they call one of the Mayo Clinic nurses. In 1923, uh, she ventured out of uh, Minnesota to New York, where she took a job as a medical surgical nurse. And after a stay in New York, I don't think it was very long, she returned to Mayo to begin her six-month training in nurse anesthesia because that was about how long it was uh, back then, under the supervision of Mary Hines. Now, I've really tried to find more information on Mary Hines, and I've not been able to, but she was like uh, the chief of... uh, nurse anesthesia at Mayo Clinic at the time, followed by, I think, Florence Henderson. And so she was a a very, uh, very uh, remarkable person. And while she was in nurses training at Mayo, her earliest role in this specialty was likely sparked by her interest of what Alice McGall was doing. And we remember that Alice McGall is known as our mother Mm -hmm. of uh, anesthesia she's the mother of nurse anesthesia and florence henderson i mean think of all of us when we were in like diploma programs and so forth and we rotated through the operating room we were all ears and all eyes and we watched a lot but even in my time i really was focused on that nurse anesthetist and what that nurse anesthetist did and um and for her that nurse anesthetist was alice mcgall Mayo was small then, and everybody knew everybody. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad, you know, really, (laughs) in today's time. But again, they seemed to think it was good. And um, so she probably had had conversations with Edith Graham, who became Edith Graham Mayo. And Edith learned um, anesthesia techniques from William Mayo. And uh, so she probably knew all of those uh, heroes of the time. Now, what was her training like? Uh, from what I can find in the, in the historical literature, she observed another anesthetist for several weeks before she was allowed to administer anesthesia herself. So it was more like on-the-job training. See one, do one, teach one. Uh, in the day, that day, she used ether and chloroform, although not a lot of chloroform, but she did use it. Nitrous oxide, ethyl chloride with oxygen. Uh, At the time, it was very common to administer a small percentage of carbon dioxide with the inspired gases to stimulate respiration. (laughs) And um, ether was given either by open drop or by mask with oxygen and nitrous oxide. Boy, Um, I'm
2: glad they didn't have pulse ox because, you know, (laughs) some of them had to
4: (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, they they talked about... um, I think uh, one of the big victories of Agatha Hodgins is she could use nitrous oxide and maintain a pink circulation. Wow. So mm-hmm. you, you just have to ask yourself, what percentage of nitrous oxide was the rest of these people give it? I know. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Crowell. Mm would only let agatha hodgins use that mm-hmm. he would not let any of the interns or residents anybody use it he said because in the hands of the expert it was the best but in the hands of a non-expert it was very very dangerous no kidding mm. <laughs> wow. and uh, as i said she didn't use much chloroform and she was not taught a regional anesthesia so these were the the gases of the in, in what they use so, so how about How about the monitoring? Well, we could probably sum that up, saying it was pretty much non-existent uh, as, as we know it today. She kept a finger on the pulse. Routine monitors were the ears, the eyes, and the hands of the anesthetist. Mostly physicians took blood pressure in the day, and they only did that for diagnostic situations. Like, it looked like the patient was dying. We better see what the blood pressure (laughs) is, I guess. Um, The anesthetist observed uh, very, very closely the depth, the rate, the quality of respiration. And you remember that Agatha Hodgins used to walk the floors at night just listening to people breathe so she would know what normal respirations would be when someone was asleep. And in addition to that, uh, they kept a finger on the pulse, monitoring the rate, The rhythm and the strength IV fluids were not routinely given and things like an EKG for example was 40 years in the future I mean look at look at this time I mean I I trained in anesthesia in 1967 to 1969 and we didn't have an EKG on everybody Mm -hmm. you know we had maybe two or three what we used to call bullet monitors Mm -hmm. and the sickest patient would get one, and as little student nurses, we'd go set up our room and then go to breakfast, and if you weren't careful, somebody would come steal your bullet monitor out of your room while you <laughs> were at breakfast. So you got so you wouldn't even go to breakfast. Once you got it, it was yours, and um, and, and that was it. But the monitoring, uh, as we know it today, was not there. So they really they they had to be attentive, and they had to just use their senses to adequately take care of these patients. And, you know, I can remember the time, even in 1967, 69, we couldn't take a blood pressure in an infant. And we used precordial stethoscopes. Mm-hmm. And you can tell a lot in terms of the, the strength of the heart tone, a finger on the pulse, the strength of that, and in terms of where that patient is when they're getting in a pretty good state or not so mm-hmm. good. If that's all you have, you know, you really, you really can gain a lot from it. But that was her early education, and that's the, But she had the best of the teachers for sure. Oh. It sounds like she had a good crew, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. amen.
2: Yeah. I was doing an EGD at the hospital the other day, and it was time to be relieved, and the other CRNA walked in. And whenever I do them, I'm I'm up there holding their airway. Most people don't do that, but I always I'm up there at the top, and then I will lean over so I can hear if mm. there's any air movement and. The, CRNA relieving me, come in. She goes, are you kissing the patient? What are you doing? (laughs) And her mother was a CRNA. I said, why don't you ask your mother what I'm (laughs) doing? (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, Nancy, why don't you tell us a little bit about her early life as a nurse anesthetist.
3: Okay. I always wondered how they gave oxygen. Just
4: blow by. I mean,
3: did they have oxygen tanks? Where did they get it? That's, hmm.
4: Yeah, if you look at some of the old pictures, you see the big, big cylinders. So they had to be oxygen tanks and tanks Hmm. of nitrous oxide.
2: Well, heck, I still use the big H cylinders in the plastic surgery office because we didn't have piped-in oxygen. Mm -hmm. We just hooked it up to the back of the gas machine. Yeah. Still.
3: (laughs) Well, looking at her um, as she moved forward in her career, While she was at Mayo, uh, Dagmar met a physician called Dr. Vern Hunt, and uh, the literature says he was a very good-looking man. I think oh, in, we need to in, find a I picture. Think, I think in our terms we would have called him a hunk.
2: Uh, he,
4: he was good looking, I okay. can tell you. Oh, we'll find that picture. Uh, we we are. To We're gonna that show that show picture at the Seattle meeting. We'll or no, t- at the oh. Charleston meeting, because Nancy yeah. and I are speaking uh. at the North Carolina meeting on Dagmar Nelson in September. Yeah. So come to that and you will see that handsome Verna Handsome Hunt. plus Yes. <laughs> surgeon.
3: But he was very influential in her life a few years later. But um, after years at Mayo, Dr. Hunt returned to Los Angeles, California, where he spent a year as an intern. Uh, he joined the staff at several hospitals in the LA area, but he spent most of his time at St. Vincent's Hospital. And this was during the depression and times were rough. So very few physicians practiced anesthesia full-time because it didn't pay very much. And those that did were were usually always surgeons and if they were surgeons and giving anesthesia to make enough money to get by in the depression they were also general practitioner physicians and they relied on all of this for most of their income because it was really hard times for physicians as well as everyone else at that time. So at this time most nurse anesthetists in Los Angeles County were employed by hospitals and some hospitals use nurse anesthetists exclusively.
2: We're looking at the picture. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I googled the picture. You, you can see, by like, the way, he's
3: posed, yes, that, was that my he thought. thinks he's like, a lot of himself. Yes, he, does. Okay. Okay. he He thinks a lot
1: of himself. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yes. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> but getting back to this, uh, his physician, a physician anesthetist were available. Nurse anesthetists were assigned to patients who could not pay. Well, Imagine now. that. <laughs> Nothing changed. Uh, I was right. like, Yeah,
1: what's changed with that? Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so one nurse anesthetist at the time was Sophie Winton and she actually billed her patients and she did not accept hospital employment. So maybe she's the first independent business person She in very anesthesia.
2: Well could have been. I mean, oh. like you know I give y'all an assignment. Now I've got to start looking
4: her up no no who's gonna do that is Stacy Yancey oh, okay. from North Carolina and Megan so Connor they're going to be presenting in the uh, at our state meeting in September uh, um yeah September, September. yeah about Sophie Winton she was highly decorated in World War one hmm. and I I feel sure she was the first first to do independent billing. well wow Stay
2: tuned, folks. I'll talk to Stacy, and we'll get that podcast right. taped.
3: Well, uh, Dr. Vern Hunt did not have an easy time at St. Vincent's Hospital. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because he had a terrible temper, uh-huh. and if a nurse handed him the wrong instrument or wrong thing, he would he would throw it.
2: Well, that's, that's again. Times did not change.
4: But throw it out of the but it, seventh floor window. I know floor seventh window. floor window. They didn't have the windows closed.
3: That's right. Oh. In the operating. It room. was hot. They didn't have any air conditioning. This is L.A. Oh my God. So okay. Jeez. Wonder if, what
2: their infection rate was. Probably I, well, was just fine.
1: I don't know, but you know what that uh-uh. reminds me of is I was in San Francisco for a meeting one time. Got sick as a dog. We'd gone out to eat the night before, and I ate the Caesar salad dressing, not knowing that Caesar salad dressing has raw eggs in it. Yeah. So I got salmonella, not knowing at the time, and I'd gone to my meeting and come back on the bus, and this guy looks at me, who I didn't know, and he goes, Are you okay? I was white. I went in the bathroom, and I was definitely sick. So here I am in San Francisco downtown, and i'm googling i can't remember if like i googled at the time but anyway i got got a doc got to a doctor and i walk in this doctor's office which was on like the 14th floor of this building downtown glass door i remember opening it up and it was the frosted glass i opened it up and i look in and there's a window right across it's open and there are pigeons flying in <laughs> and out walking around the waiting room and i never forgot that i thought this doctor's office in san francisco had the windows open and birds flying in and out, and here only I am. in San Francisco. <laughs> oh yeah, I was like, wow. But that's what that reminded me of. Yeah. Well,
3: did he have oh. a bird feeder in
2: there? No, he didn't have. A, no,
1: it was crazy. He I had, mean, I, <laughs>
2: he had bird poop on the carpet. Yeah, oh, whatever. And I can't
1: remember what he told me, but it was something really, really bad was wrong with me, or I'd gotten salmonella, and I was like. I'm going to choose to think it's Salmonella. So, literally, for six days, all I did was sit in the room and run back and forth to the bathroom. And uh,
2: and you the, were really the, thin. The, and the hotel. When yeah. you come back. Oh, I,
1: I lost 17 pounds during that
2: time. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: There's no lie. And I remember the, the hotel folks were so nice. They would bring crackers and ginger ales up to me repeatedly. The last day I was there, so I had planned all these trips in San Francisco. I was going to go to Muir Woods and you know, go down to wherever, Clint Eastwood, what's the name of that little place he was from. And, and the last day I was there, I got to eat. I ate some mashed potatoes and I flew home. And that was my whole trip <laughs> to San Francisco. That was your
2: Francisco. whole trip. Yeah. And so when that picture of you and George Bush where you're so skinny, is that right? <laughs> Whenever you got home? Because you were so That was stin- pretty close. Yeah, you pretty are close. so stinking yeah. thin yeah. in yeah. that picture.
1: Yeah, that was pretty close timing. Yep, (laughs) yep, good, good, good. Good
3: Hey, I'm
2: pretty good. All right, so sorry.
3: We Well, anyway, like I said, and Sandy said, he would get so angry that he would throw the instruments out the window when he was on the seventh floor. And so it was a routine job for the orderlies to go outside and retrieve the instruments from the lawn at the end of his surgeries. Am surprised that, the nursing that that was every day that. that he operated. They didn't have any. That's the only reason
4: <laughs> they
3: had to go down and pick up the instruments and bring them back so that they had instruments to operate oh with. Oh my goodness! So, needless to say, he was demanding of his anesthetist, and if he didn't like how they administered anesthesia, he wouldn't let them administer anesthesia anymore for him. So on one occasion Hunt was operating at another hospital in Los Angeles where Dr. William uh, Chalmers-Francis was administering the anesthesia and uh, he was also, Dr. William uh, Chalmers-Francis was also the head of the group. So Hunt didn't like the anesthesia results and he never asked Dr. Chalmers-Francis to administer any anesthesia again for him.
4: And he probably never forgot him because he went after him Mm -hmm. really hard Mm -hmm. because it was the Chalmers Francis Dagmar Nelson case. Mm -hmm. This was the physician that was bringing the charges against Dagmar Nelson for practicing medicine without a license. So Hunt already had a bad eye out on him.
2: Oh, my goodness. So Sandy... I'm sure Miss Nelson was on the move. As always, it sounds like she is. So, what took her from Mayo to California besides the hunk?
4: <laughs> yeah, well, it was pretty much the hunk. Um, at the time that Dr. Hunt arrived at St. Vincent's. There were no nurse anesthetists, Jeremy. That's why the nurse anesthetists weren't picking up the instruments uh, at, the, okay. gotcha. at the end of every operating day. Gotcha. Uh, so anesthesia was administered by surgeons or house officers or interns. Or um, At one time, a physician anesthetist administered an overdose of an anesthetic to Dr. Hunt's patient, and the patient died mm. in the operating room. And Dr. Hunt had never lost a patient in the operating wow. room before. And so that obviously left an impression on him. So he sent a letter to Mayo, to Dagmar Nelson, because he had known her when he was there earlier, and asked her to come to California and be his anesthetist. He told her she would be his exclusive anesthetist, but she would be employed by the hospital. She would work for the hospital when she was not giving anesthesia for him and would be available to other surgeons uh, to administer their anesthesia if they wanted her when he was not performing surgery.
2: (laughs) That sounds like something I couldn't review. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So
4: Hunt let her know that California was a hotbed against Nurse Hmm. And at that time physicians anesthetists were getting organized in some states and california was one of those states and they uh they were doing this under the direction of um of the mcmeshams who never were um he, he was a physician but he was uh, wheelchair banned due to arthritis so he never practiced medicine but his reason for being was to eliminate non-physician anesthetist from the face of the earth in the United States. So he was organizing these people uh, at that time. So uh, probably not to Hunt's surprise, she accepted his invitation and moved to California. She had already been to Seattle. She probably liked, you know, the West Coast. And she administered her first anesthetic for Hunt on September 5th, 1932, so, as I said, there was unrest for nurse anesthetists in California at the time. In the previous three years, physician anesthetists had been trying to rid the county, uh, that was particularly around Los Angeles and so forth, of nurse anesthetists. Uh, they attempted twice to have the Attorney General of California render an opinion that the administration of anesthesia was a practice of medicine. But they lost both challenges. But never say never. The physicians circulated a letter to hospitals in Los Angeles stating they had won. And some different nurse anesthetists began to lose their job just because of this propaganda. Now, at the time, Adeline Curtis was a nurse anesthetist who was targeted. And she also, she was very aggressive. If you look how she was described at the formation of the ANA, She was very supportive of that. She was the aggressor. Hilda Solomon was benevolent, and Agatha Hodgins was said to be visionary. That's how they, Mm -hmm. you know, described Everybody took their roles. Everybody had had described those through roles. So in 1928, physician Anestis got a statement from the uh, California Board of Medical Examiners that said anesthesia was a practice of medicine. And, you know, they've really not moved off of that, even to this day. Right. They still believe that anesthesia is the sole. Well, that happened,
2: practice. what, in North Carolina, 1998, right. I believe it was. Right. Cindy Black was president. Yeah.
4: Some nurse anesthetists lost their jobs. But in other cases, hospitals like St. Vincent's, Vincent's, where Dr. Hunt was, he just ignored it. <laughs> you know, yeah. he okay. said, what is this? <laughs> We're not paying any attention to this. So... Uh, Ms. Curtis obtained an attorney, his name was Thomas McFadden, who asked for an opinion from the California Attorney General, who stated there was no law prohibiting a nurse from administering anesthesia. In 1931, a letter from the California Attorney General went on to state, the practice of dentistry and medicine involves the prescribing of treatment, but the mere mechanical administration without prescribing does not constitute the practice of either dentistry or medicine. Hmm. Very, very important statements there. And so in Los Angeles, Nurse heard of the Curtis case, in the Attorney General's opinion, and were determined to join forces and organize into an association. They knew that one person couldn't do it. Now, this was before NANA was formed. You know, because we didn't form until 1931, and this was in uh, 1928-29. So in 1929, the group formed the California Nurse Anesthetist Association. And by 1931, the International Association of Nurse Anesthetists, soon to be changed to the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists, was formed. But in California, they already had 149 active members uh, way back in the 1920s of nurses Mm -hmm. that were administering anesthesia. So what was bringing the physicians forward again? It probably was the economic pinch of the Depression that led uh, these physician anesthetists to renew their attack against nurse anesthetists in October of 1933. And the victim was Dagmar Nelson. They already had uh, been after Adeline Curtis, but she got the attorney general's opinion. And now it was Dagmar Nelson. And the physician anesthetist was led by that poor anesthetist, we know that, from Dr. Hunt. He didn't like him, wouldn't let him do his cases, <laughs> Dr. Chalmers Francis. And he filed an injunction to restrain Nelson and St. Vincent's Hospital from, quote, practicing medicine without a license. And it was Dr. Hunt, Adeline, Curtis, and Sophie Winton and she had some money because she was direct billing <laughs> way <Yeah>. back then <laughs> yeah. and uh, so uh, so she helped she helped pay for the uh, Dagmar Nelson defense the defense tried to get the case dropped by claiming the parties bringing suit did not have standing we hear that a lot you know uh, uh, today opinions from the Supreme Court don't have standing to bring action but the judge ruled that the anesthesia section of the Los Angeles Medical Society, could not bring suit. They didn't have standing. That was correct. But he he went on to say that individual physicians, Chalmers, Francis, could bring suit. After the hearing and the ruling by the judge, someone from the L.A. Medical Society inserted an item in press stating the judge had ruled again in their favor Hmm. and anesthesia was a practice of medicine. They didn't say that at all. He just said that the society couldn't bring suit, but individual physicians could. And so Nelson's attorney wrote a strong letter of complaint, and a retraction was published the next month. Which
2: nobody read. But, the
1: damage was already done. It was normal.
4: It's the same playbook. It is. It's it like is. Over, oh, and yeah. over and over oh, yeah. and over oh, and yeah. over again. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> how do you break the cycle, Sharon? Figure it
4: out. Mm. Uh. Yeah. So there you have how <laughs> she got there.
0: Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Nancy, the trial begins
1: and I'm sure there are a few fireworks. Let's talk about that a little bit.
3: Okay. Well, round number one, the trial started July 12th, 1934. Uh, Dagmar Nelson's attorney argued that since the issue was the illegal practice of medicine, this case should not be settled in the court, but should be brought by the attorney general as a criminal violation of law. The defense already knew the attorney general on, was on their side, and this was based upon the letter that was received by Adeline Curtis and by the fact that no nurse anesthetist had been charged uh, for that violation to date. So, in other words, practicing medicine. The plaintiffs argued that while the violation of the Medical Practice Act was one issue, the license to practice medicine was an exclusive property right and should remain In the court, Hmm. the license, they argued, was a property right granted by the state to authorize persons who hold it the right to practice medicine. Hmm. So anyone practicing medicine without it was trespassing on the license and damaging incomes, money, money,
1: money,
3: of all those who held the license legally. The judge generally agreed with defense, but wanted to hear all arguments from both sides and ordered the case to continue. Uh, There is a saying among some attorneys, if you have the law on your side, pound the law. If you have truth on your side, pound the truth. And if you have neither on your side, pound the table and appeal to the emotions of the jury. Mm. Don't forget that one. I won't. So there was no jury in this case. So, arguments on both sides occurred. The plaintiffs pounded the law of California medical examiners, drawing from surgeon witnesses what their responsibility was with regard to the anesthetized patient and what they could see and do during the case. So, in other words, they brought surgeons in, you know, and had them testify to, you know, what they could do in addition to doing their surgery. Uh, the defense pounded the truth, arguing that the nurse acting under the supervision and direction of the operating surgeon who was present was in full control of the anesthetic. Now, keep in mind this acting under the supervision of the surgeon. The surgeon was able to monitor the condition of the patient by being informed of the observations of the nurse. The defense also argued that the Anesthesia was not only a part of nursing, but was taught in some schools of nursing, and that was true. There were some schools of nursing that were mm-hmm. teaching anesthesia. Nurses who had no anesthesia training administered ether to obstetric patients to, um, to slow labor until the obstetrician could come And they were doing this with no obstetrician, no physician of any kind there when they were using this ether to slow labor. Plaintiff surgeons argued argued they could not see patients during the case. And defense surgeons argued they could see the patient's face, feel a pulse, and watch respirations from the surgical field. And look at what color the blood was. (laughs) And tell the nurse anesthetist. (laughs) You know, whenever
2: I first uh, started in anesthesia school, a lot lot of the CRNAs still would say incision made blood
4: red. Yes, that's true. We didn't have pulse oximetry. We had to document something, did we? They (laughs) still did it. Yeah,
3: that's true. The plaintiff argued only physicians could order the administration of drugs as well as dose. In anesthesia, no doses were ever ordered, so the nurse was practicing illegally when she was administering anesthesia. Defense responded it was common for physicians to order drugs, especially for pain, on an as-needed basis, with the nurse making the decision as to when and how much to give. Now, I don't remember making that decision. They usually had a dose there during Mm -hmm. my time.
2: No, we still had a range Mm -hmm. and how often you could give it whenever I was an ICU nurse. I mean, it would be uh, 2 to 10 milligrams of morphine PRN for pain. Okay, but there was some dose there. There was some dose, but Mm -hmm. you had latitude
3: on how much you would give. So in regard to an inhalation agent, the defense argued they ordered the drug to be administered and were there if the nurse did it wrong. When asked about dosages, they argued they, that they ordered the patient to be put to sleep and keep the patient safe and anesthetized. So no order for dosages for such an order. So there was really no reason to have any kind of dosage to well, give. Well,
2: think about ether. I mean, Would they be dropped two
3: drops (laughs) or whatever I mean I was just it was just
2: such a a nebulous thing Hmm. giving anesthesia uh, that whole thing you mean
1: even I could have done it Uh, that's what you're saying there you go
3: (laughs) but you're right I mean they were mostly dropping ether and how do you decide what dose how do you even know how much you gave when the case is over but anyway some surgeons said they demanded the patient be safely anesthetized and that order was sufficient uh, many who testified said they were in full charge of everything in the room, including administration of anesthesia, and they acknowledged that no more than two weeks training in anesthesia or none at all was what was happening with the nurse anesthetist.
1: Wow. It sounds like the same thing now. You have less training. Uh. You can't give anesthesia without a supervision of a physician mm. because you're not
3: trained. But then, you know, how can the surgeon be in charge of everything in the room? You know, think about it.
4: Well, that gets to what we're going to talk about at the end, the captain of the ship doctrine yes. and what happened to it. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: you know, there's still a whole gender issue wrapped up in all of this that is tinging this and, you know, the patriarchal model is alive and well in medicine and it's slowly being chipped away but you know you think about it back then i'd love to know the numbers how many crnas were actually female and i would say the majority of them are were female Mm -hmm. but i don't know that for a fact
1: well you know i think that's interesting it brings up a good point for me because you know i'd and you know, I've been around 24 years now in nurse anesthesia. And Sandy and Nancy, I'll just go back to you. I mean, I don't remember as many males being in as there are now. Do you know what the ratios were back then?
4: No, the it what? was mostly uh, female profic- yeah. profession then. Uh, yeah. The women were nurses and yeah. to become nurse anesthetists, and the men often were doctors. Yeah. yeah. Um, And that, uh, if you look at, how Bankert wrote her book and certainly how Virginia Thatcher wrote her book. It was always her, her, her mm-hmm. with the uh, anesthetist and him with the surgeon. And um, and Bankert really stressed that a lot in, in her book. But it changed after particularly, I think, a World War II and then on after uh, Vietnam mm. because they had all the, the funding, you know, and so – the the guys from the service could come back and get GI bills.
3: Uh, you have another theory, Nancy? I remember the first male that was admitted at the nursing school at Baptist Hospital, Martin Comer. Was it? It may have been. I can't. I'm nursing, pretty sure you said nursing. Nursing. I'm talking nursing, about not, okay. the first male student. Okay. to come to the hospital at Baptist Hospital, came my senior year in nursing school. And where? That wait, was, was in it? the 60s. Okay, well
2: so, that's yeah. Vietnam
4: yeah. or yeah. Korea yeah. right. Yep. Well, fifties was Korea, sixties uh, was Vietnam. Well,
2: I see another podcast in the making. Yeah, <laughs>
1: okay. well, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah,
4: yeah. I think, uh, but then the men started today, we know it's just it's generally fifty. That's 50. right, 50-50. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: how many how many males were in your class? I know Jerry was in there. Six. and Paul. There, we had more men. Than six women. out of how many? Ten. We Ten. had six really? men
3: and four women.
1: And you were in school what in the eighties?
3: Shut up. There were no men. Well, in if you my go class. if you go
4: back to our school where the three of us yeah. graduated, and look at the wall of pictures yes. on the wall, we have a picture of every graduated class yeah. since 1942. Yeah. Um, Leroy Hawks, uh, the late Leroy Hawks, was in my class in 1967, and he was one of the few men on that picture prior to then, uh, a cook guy was the first male to graduate Mm -hmm. from our school and Mm -hmm. and there was a handful that's it well i
2: think that'd be an interesting subject and talk about gender related to Mm -hmm. nurse anesthesia of course i'm always grateful that we have so many men because that's why we make money it would have stayed feminized kind of like teaching now teaching is getting more men so it's not as economically depressed anymore so that'd be a good podcast y'all get on that yeah how yeah. do you like getting orders we from me some now of these we got stacked up for, for doing well, it more
4: well guess me back. was arthur goodell he testified okay. for right. the physicians
3: yeah i was getting is to that him. goodell airway yeah
4: yeah it is ah. but also signs signs and stages. stages of anesthesia anesthesia okay. okay.
3: So Dr. Arthur Goodell testified for the physicians. And as we mentioned, his name is very familiar Mm -hmm. to anesthesia because he did develop some equipment. And like I said, he did the ether signs and stages. And actually, there were signs and stages for chloroform and nitrous oxide also. But his ether signs and stages were probably the most recognized. But he gave a detailed exploration of his theory that eye signs were key to knowing the stage and plane of anesthesia. And he was right. He argued there was no way an operating surgeon could make these observations and control the anesthetic. Mm -hmm. So, true, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, He stated he was writing a book that explained these points, and he did. I mean, it did happen. Nelson stated she did not use eye signs but followed breathing patterns as a measure of the depth of anesthesia. Well, you know, if you look at Goodell's signs, he also talked about changes in breathing, Mm -hmm. eye signs, that sort of thing. The defense then asked Goodell if there were any other physician anesthetist in the world who believed and wrote that he... uh, what he was saying and he said no okay
4: (laughs) nobody looks good under cross-examination just so you know
3: (laughs) the other thing was the defense had been advised that dr goodell had an anesthetic death but he repeatedly denied that this ever had
4: happened Hmm. Interesting. So it's getting hot, isn't it? That case is. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall back in 1934 to hear those arguments? Do
2: they have have stenographers and actually. I bet they had the
1: windows open and birds flying in. uh, Yeah. I don't know how they. (laughs) They had had to keep
4: records of some way, but but I don't know how But keep
3: in mind, most of this, what you see is there are surgeons who are testifying for Dagmar. And so surgeons that are testifying against Dagmar. Uh-huh. So it looks to me as though all of their witnesses that they brought forward with the exception and when probably doc- I don't know whether Dr. Goodell was a surgeon or not. But at that time, they were operating and seeing patients and everything else. But it's just interesting that you don't see any other nurses that administer anesthesia mm. being called to the witness stand. Yeah. yeah.
2: Interesting. All right, well, Sandy, we've got round one behind us. Let's talk about round two, the defense. Okay,
4: now it comes to the defense. Although the defense argued the nurse anesthetist was very well trained to administer anesthesia, there was never an argument presented that the nurse anesthetist could do this alone. You'll see when it gets to the ruling, it's under the supervision and direction of a physician, any physician. Okay, but... That has been something that has been left hanging Mm. all these Mm -hmm. years. All right. Many surgeons and defense physicians stated that they had little anesthesia training, and the nurses were very capable of administering anesthesia. And they, as physicians, were responsible for everything and everyone in the operating room. Everything. 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 They're in (laughs) charge. Um, Some defense witnesses stated they were responsible for the total care of the patient Even if the anesthetist was a physician anesthetist, they were still in charge. It's my patient. I'm in charge. And in other words, they were just singing the captain of the ship doctrine, which was very popular at that time. Some surgeons stated they would rather have the physician as anesthetist so they would not have the responsibility for the anesthetic. But some surgeons testified they decided most of the time what kind of anesthetic they wanted, no matter who gave the anesthetic. And Florence Henderson, again, a renowned nurse in this time, uh, testified on on the behalf of Nelson. Also, the defense of Nelson uh, called director of the Nurses' Training Program at St. Vincent's Hospital to testify. She called attention to the fact that the California Board of Health established curriculum for all schools of nursing in the state. The plaintiff had argued the Nurse Practice Act did not say much about practice of a nurse and did not give nurses authority to administer anesthesia. The defense countered that the state did not have a law prohibiting nurses from administering anesthesia, but the state also mandated uh, that content actually be taught, requiring the nurse to know about anesthetic drugs. And some nurses, even those without advanced training in anesthesia, Again, as Nancy said, administered ether to laboring patients, even when a physician was not present.
2: Well, can I, let me stop you. Now, think about it. I don't even know if they're still in existence, but you taught us about pen handheld Mm -hmm, vaporizers. mm -hmm. And I know they were still in use whenever I was a student nurse, because I was my cousin's coach when she had her first baby and i was in nursing school so that had to have been around 1982 Mm -hmm. 1983 somewhere and she retained part of her placenta and they used pinthrain yeah they still had them so that's a nurse or self-administration of anesthesia right right? yeah so that could have been part of the Yeah,
4: the idea was penthrine inhalers. They would strap it to the patient's wrist or something, Mm -hmm. and they could breathe it, you know, as they were uncomfortable. And then the idea was when they got a little sleepy, maybe their hand would fall away. Mm -hmm. But that was before you let the whole family come into the room, and then the family kept holding the mask on the... Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Let let me help you out there a little bit.
2: That's like the PCA pumps. They (laughs) push the button. They're out, and they
4: they keep pushing the button. But anyway, some other arguments that... Uh, were well-received, I think. Sorry, there were hundreds of nurse anesthetists in California and around the country. Well, we know there was almost 150 of them Mm -hmm. in California at the time, very close to that number. And many nurse anesthetists were working at very reputable hospitals, the best of the best that could be found in the United States. The Mayo Clinic, of course. Uh, Presby uh, in New York, that's where Annie Penland was from, who served on Mm -hmm. the front line. Um, during World War I. Lakeside Hospital in Cleveland, Gertrude Fife and Agatha Hodgins, and Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, Helen Lamb, first anesthetic for pneumonectomy uh, was Helen Lamb. And and how can you argue that it's it's not a good acceptable practice when the best hospitals in the country, uh, this is their routine. And many of those nurse anesthetists had served well in World War I in France, and so they had all that record. And and there was a recently formed National Association of Nurses. That was formed in 1931. This trial was in 1934. So they had all that. The defense called witnesses um, and advanced evidence to show the giving of drugs, here you go again, under the direction or understood instruction of a physician, was a recognized practice and within the limits of the definition of nursing. The recognition and reporting of changes in a patient's condition and acting accordingly under the direct or understood supervision of a physician was within the practice of nursing. Nursing education, as accepted by law, gave instruction in the administration of anesthetics and recognition of the signs and stages of anesthesia, and it was an established practice within the law for registered nurses to give anesthetics as a nursing duty. Now, before we get, to, I go into the the end of the trial, and then Nancy will talk about the decision. But uh, we can never underestimate uh, how much influence Dr. Hunt had on this. He talked uh, Dagmar Nelson into coming to California in a hotbed. Yeah. He knew it was going to happen, and at the same time, he was. By her side the entire time, he was getting very strong physician and essence to testify for the defense. He financed this trial along with Sophie Winton and Hunt and, uh, and um, uh, Curtis and some of the others. So he was very influential in its outcome. So the trial lasted 12 days, and I, I looked and I said, I "What how old this woman was then?" I just looked it up last night. So alone. Single woman, on the stand, off and on for 12 days. She was 42 years of age. And not married. And not married. Did she ever marry? No. Of course not. No. Because um, so, no man could. <laughs> <laughs> on, on July twenty seventh, 1934, both sides rested their case. Now, I think this last part is hilarious. The attorney for the plaintiff, Coslin, I think was his name, said in the closing arguments that he wished the record to show there was nothing personal intended in trial. And from all he heard, it sounded like Nelson was a very good anesthetist. Nothing personal against you, Dagmar Nelson. And the judge responded, we all know that. There is nothing personal intended. It's just a suit. <laughs> and that's what he said. And he shut him right down. So uh, that was the end of the closing arguments, and then we come to the decision.
1: So Nancy, uh, I'm sure you're going to tell us all about the decision and um, the ramifications of that decision.
3: Well, Judge Campbell did release his decision on July 31st, 1934, and what his decision said is that at the same time mentioned in the complaint, defendant Nelson was engaged as a nurse anesthetist under the direction and supervision of operating surgeons and with the knowledge of St. Vincent's Hospital. So you can see here is where we get into direction and supervision. That the act of Def- D- defendant Nelson under the evidence introduced in this case do not constitute practicing medicine or surgery under the Medical Practice Act. That evidence in this case is insufficient to make a case against defendants of practicing medicine without a license in violation of the Medical Practice Act. So, essentially, you know, she was... She won. She,
4: she won. She won, <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: but in a sense...
4: Yay, Dagmar! We, um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if she was... Uh, well, clearly she couldn't work for those 12 days. I mean... Right. Can you... Uh, Jeremy? <laughs> what maybe she did better with her money than Cyrano's do today? <laughs> I mean, they were about to lose their minds over the pandemic and not working yeah. for a few weeks, but still, yeah. You know, think yeah. about it. Yeah. She didn't have anybody else to
3: pay her bills, yeah. Unless
2: that's true. we find out Dr. Hunt was or something. Well, yeah. Right.
3: Listen, she <laughs> he, babysat for his children. Well, that don't
2: mean anything. Asked yeah. you law about that. He
1: paid for her lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, paid for her Just lawsuit. Saying. I mean. <laughs> I want that sure. She's not worried about the money. <laughs> <laughs> All
4: right. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so okay. it was a win. And then what happened, Nancy? Well, on November
3: 19, 1934, Chalmers Francis filed a formal notice of appeal to the uh, California Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, and, and, and in that, he described the practice of... A, of he described the practice and education of nurse anesthetist okay he did that in his and actually before notice. that he
4: tried to de- declare a mistrial yeah and so he, he lost that and after he lost that he went to the california supreme the, court yeah, yeah. so
2: the, from
3: july to november
2: he was not giving up yeah. no
0: yeah
3: so at this appeal what was the National association of nurse anesthetists which later became aana filed its first amicus curae, which that means friend of the court brief. And it described the real practice in education of nurse anesthetists. It was the only amicus filed in the case and the American Society of, uh, of Anesthetists, incorpor- which incorporated in 1935.
2: The American uh-huh. Society of Anesthetists. Yeah. And then they became the American yeah. Society of Anesthesiologists. Yeah, well, became, isn't
3: that interesting? Okay. -hmm. Remain silent. Okay, so there was a uh, an association of physician anesthetists, which became the American Society of Anesthesiology. Okay, they were silent. They not
2: not to to jump ship here, but there's an argument over who had a formal organization. We AANA was 1931, and they were actually 1935,
4: 35, 36. It was around the time. Of the Daguar Nelson okay. case, that they have became a national okay. organization, but they later argued that they were incorporated in 1905. Because a- and all that I can find is that was a new I- a New England, uh, okay. I-, I mean uh, New York, right. Socia- Association of Anesthetists, Physician Anesthetists, and at that time they were having a lot of states that were organizing, but not, not as nestle. a national body. So
2: we incorporated four years well, before yeah, they if, did. If, if, if,
4: the, if the numbers are right, if they are right that they did incorporate in, uh, in 1905, then, of course, they were well ahead of us. But from reading history and all that was going on and all the battles at the state and the state groups— I don't. I cannot believe they were organized in a, as a national body mm-hmm. in 1905. Mm-hmm. And our gun never believed that either. She said their charter said I think 1936, 35, something like that. Okay.
3: But they they stayed silent in this whole this whole case. Well, they haven't
2: shut up since. I know. <laughs> I know. So on May 18th,
3: 1936, the California Supreme Court released its ruling, and it affirmed the decision that was made by Judge Campbell. Uh, never say die. <laughs> Chalmers Francis attempted to raise money to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, but he failed, and the case finally was dropped.
4: Now you get it. Wow. So when he says, I got to have some money, mm-hmm. open your pocketbook, open your wallet, and all the people that have been supporting him verbal said, we can't do that.
0: Well, yeah. that, that part has changed, and
4: I think in some of my reading, I find that uh, it would have cost like fifteen hundred dollars in mm-hmm. nineteen thirty four to get this to the Supreme Court, and and they couldn't come up with that. And uh, yeah, but so- how much for- is
2: that
3: in today's dollars?
2: Fifteen
4: hundred dollars. Nineteen thirty four. Gosh. But yeah. remember the, know
3: you know that. the depression was it was close Raging. to the end, but there was still you know a lot of. Uh, people with no money to pay the physicians, and so well that part was, I
2: can say I think has changed because now mm-hmm. the the docs will open their pocketbook. Oh, they oh, will. Yeah, they You're they right will.
4: about that. Yeah,
3: that has changed. And so anyway, the case was dropped. But as Sandy was saying earlier, the role of Vern Vern Hunt uh, that he played in all of this you can't underestimate it. Uh, his assistance included unstinting expenditures of money and getting the best counsel. And energy rounding up witnesses and giving the lawyers a solid background of information on which to build their case. So he was very, very active in the background, helping her defense and also supplying money so that they had good lawyers and everything to help her out. So he was a good friend to her.
1: Yeah, sounds like it. So, Sharon, that would be worth $33,727 in today's dollars.
2: Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Average well, just compound
1: think, interest rate of three point five six percent during okay. that time play.
2: Well, just think and they spent <laughs> a quarter of a million on me. So yeah. well, <laughs> they would have forked over wow. thirty three
3: thousand
2: in a heartbeat. Yeah, absolutely.
3: These days. But one thing that I was that just came to mind while I was you know talking about all this is obviously, or I would think, looking at. Um, how the physician was really stepping out there and saying they were in control of everything, everything in the room, then that makes them liable Liable. for everything in the room. But obviously, there weren't like malpractice malpractice cases and things going on during this time. Otherwise, I don't think they would have been stepping out there claiming that they were in charge of everything.
2: Well, still, I think it goes back to... The time, um, the gender issue, and I still think that's a piece of it that we just can't it, – it's integral in it.
3: Oh, it is. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not saying it isn't, but I just don't think they would have. Right. I agree. It, it, yeah. You know what yeah.
2: I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. yeah, Well,
3: I think that's the, ma- you know, some
2: of you the trouble at, we, we yeah. run into now. Right.
1: Yeah, people but want to shield that like, responsibility now. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
3: it's just like go back to before we started – uh, when we started moving for removal of supervision, part of what was going on was anesthesiologists were coming in and telling the obstetrician they were liable for the nurse anesthetist, and mm-hmm. they wouldn't be liable for them. And, of course, that changed a lot of rural hospitals. The sure. anesthesiologist got the job, and the and the CRNA was out in the cold. So, like I say, I think had... Had malpractice been a big issue then, I'm I'm not sure that they would have stepped out and claimed responsibility for everything, is all I'm saying.
0: And with that, we conclude the first part of our captivating podcast series, delving into the extraordinary life and groundbreaking achievements of Dagmar Nelson. From her humble beginnings to the pivotal trial that forever solidified nurse anesthesia as a respected profession. But our journey doesn't end here. Join us on the next episode as we continue to unravel the remarkable story of Dagmar Nelson in part two. In the upcoming episode, we'll venture beyond the trial, exploring the profound impact that winning the case had on Dagmar's life and the profession as a whole. Join us on the next episode of Beyond the Mask for that great story. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 855- Three zero four thirty seven forty eight. That's eight five five three zero four thirty seven forty eight. Or go online to cRNAfinancialplanning.com. dot com.
3: Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, president of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists, and president and founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low- and middle-income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax-deductible, and we would
1: appreciate your support.